It is good to be back with you. We've been working through the book of Revelation, uh, really focusing on the throne room and the centrality of Christ. It is a book about Christ. You know, we have this... uh, I think most of us know, and I just want to reaffirm it. So, like, for example, when, when Luke writes the book of Acts, right? And there's sometime a misunderstanding that it's the Acts of the Apostle. But what we really know is these are Acts of Christ by the Holy Spirit, utilizing people to do the work of the kingdom. It is still the work of Christ. It is the Acts of Christ as He builds His church, as He establishes it on earth. And in a real way, what John is seeing in Revelation is the work of Christ in through a very difficult and tumultuous time, and also how all of these things will come together in the new heavens and the new earth. And last week, there was an opportunity to reflect in chapter 21 about the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of that, and yet somehow the passage continues to go on. And so one of the things we're going to talk about today is in light of the realities of Christ coming and establishing His kingdom, we live in what we regularly and the theologians call the already and the not yet. And that creates a measure of confusion for us sometimes when we read books like Revelation because we think of things in a linear way. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. One thing is done, then the next thing starts. And the reality is that if we read Revelation or really any prophetic literature, with that notion, we end up with some pretty troubling and challenging uh, interpretations. And what we want to do this morning is once again stress the reality of Christ's firm establishment of His kingdom, His delight and His joy in pouring out blessings in the past, in the present, and even more so in the future. And so we take this opportunity to see again the beauty of God's Word, the beauty and the power of a text that promises what has already happened, is established, what is going on now has context, and the future which is secure. So let's put the text in front of us this morning. We are in Revelation chapter uh, 22, as I recall, right? Shouldn't I know? 21 and 22. I'm going to read verse 10 and then we're going to jump to the end of verse 21. Verse 10 says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then jumping to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water, the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the, uh, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and there will be uh, and there. They will reign forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that we might be captured by the vision of you seated. But not just seated, Lord. One who comes to wipe away every tear. And may we be captured again by the vision of the Lamb that was slain, the Lion of Judah whose power is in His service and His willingness to give Himself for us. Lord, we pray that in these powerful visions, we might see again the character and nature of our God, and may it encourage us that we too may live as You have called us to. We pray that whatever is said this morning that is not useful for Your glory or the building up of Your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I was struggling with an idea or an analogy for how to describe what's going on in this passage in the sense that there is something that is going to happen, something that is happening, and something that has already happened. And uh, bear with me, I, I, I love cars. There's a way in which when we drive a car... There is something that's going to happen, which is, say, I've put my foot down on the gas because I'm going to go faster. And there is something that's going to happen. The fuel has started to go. The, the, uh, the valves have been opened. There's going to be an increase. There is already something happening, which is several of the cylinders are exploding. Some of them aren't and sending power. And then there's the thing that's already happened, which is the gas escaping down the tailpipe. And at any given moment, all of those things are happening at the exact same time. Now, if you're an engineer, you know how they break down. But for me, as I'm driving, all of these things are happening at the same time. There is the purpose of what I'm about to do, and I have already taken the initial steps, and it's going to happen. There is the thing that is already happening in the moment, which is allowing me to move forward, and there is a result of what has already happened. And all of these things happen for me almost simultaneously. There is a way... That when we read Revelation, we find that the glory of God, which has always been established, the story of God, which was established before the very foundations of the earth, is coming to fruition. There's nothing new, there's nothing surprising, and yet there is the experience of it in time. There is a way in which the divine sees the whole, and we experience the moment. And for us, that can be profoundly confusing when we talk about God bringing all things to their right and good end. This already not yet challenges us, but it should also be a comfort. And so what I want to draw up this morning is just the, the, the grid that I like to use 
to help describe the challenge of our human existence. There is uh, us, right, as individuals and as a community of faith. There are women and there are men, and we experience a vertical and a horizontal existence. The vertical, of course, is the divine, and that's the story of God. Right? This is what God has established before all creation. It is His glory, it is holiness. There is a story, and it's being communicated to us in the real world. It comes down through the prophets, through Jesus Christ, through all measure of revelation. Even in through creation, we have a story. And it started, it came from the divine, before time was even a thing. It is brought into existence, it is incarnated. Yeah, I'm going to have to spell that messy because it's small. It's incarnated in Christ. It becomes real. The story isn't just a story. It's not just a fable. It actually gets flesh. It actually becomes substantive in the very creative act. And that's where we see the character and the nature of God revealed. In this passage, we see the Lamb that was slain. We see a heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. That division that we talked about before where heaven, the place where God dwells, and earth, the place where we dwell, is overlapping, but it's supposed to be fully encompassing so that we exist in heaven in the place where God dwells. These aren't antithetical places. They're designed to be together. And so the incarnation is the bringing of those things together. God just doesn't have a spiritual idea. He has a whole idea of bringing these things together. And so what we see is that in the midst of time and history, and as Revelation reveals, there are real things drawn from the story of God happening in the world in which we live. They are incarnated. And in the midst of it, you and I sometimes rarely have the vertical view. It takes Scripture for me to see what's going on. And what I have then is my belief. I believe what I can see and what I hear. And I begin to function on the horizontal. And this affects how I behave. And broadly speaking, as we wrestle with a passage like Revelation 22, we are getting an amazing picture of the story of God. And it doesn't actually have the same sort of chronology that we expect. We know that because at one point we talk about perfection and nothing getting into the, to this heavenly city that is impure. And then we also hear that the nations still need healing because that's what the leaves of the tree are for. And we say, how can there need to be healing in the nations if God's temple is already there? Because it's happening all at the same time. And in the picture of God, there is a kingdom that is coming and has come and will come in even further degrees. And so as we go through this passage, I want you to keep in mind that we are getting a glimpse of the story, which is to give us comfort that as we go on our horizontal life and we experience things that challenge our beliefs because there are difficulties, when we're trying to figure out how we respond to God's word, we have the beauty of the incarnation to guide and to comfort. And this grid in which we live gives us the ability 
to both understand our responsibility and our steps of faith, but always with the assurance that the sovereignty of God, that the plan of God is being revealed never fully to us because we wouldn't understand it if He did. And because God is the Alpha and the Omega, He interacts with time differently than you and I do. And how He sees things played out and how He has both confidence and grief for our sin. Confidence in His sure knowledge that He has already defeated all that would plague us. And still grieving as He brings to conclusion the rebellion and tragedy that is sin. You and I graciously are given opportunities to see His story for our confidence. We regularly live in the midst of the horizontal. And if it wasn't for the incarnation, I don't know how we would be able to live. So we start then in this passage with the fact that there is no temple. The temple had been the incarnation. The temple had been that place where God dwells with His people. Whether it started in the Garden of Eden or in the tabernacle after Mount Sinai or in the temple itself, God needed to be with His people. He wanted to be in their midst and He dwelt with them. Why? So they would know how to walk and how to live. How to be His image bearers in and through the world. To be a blessing to all the nations. And there is this wonderful scene in the book of 1 Kings when Solomon finally builds the temple and he is a wise and good king early on and we get a glimpse of what this will look like because all of the nations stream to Jerusalem. The glory of the temple where God dwells, the wisdom of His people, the light of God drawing every nation to Jerusalem to learn from the wisdom of the one true God. Sadly, it didn't last long. It didn't last long because Christ did not come, because Solomon wasn't Jesus, and because sin hadn't been dealt with and the resurrection hadn't been accomplished. But nonetheless, God was showing that the place where He dwells with His people, the incarnation of His presence, can transform the world. And so now John, a Jewish man well steeped in Scripture, is glorying in the reality that a new Jerusalem is coming down. And surprisingly, magnificently, there is no temple. Now for some of us, that's not a big deal. It's been a long time since we had to offer sacrifices and go to a place. For most of us, our cultures haven't done that for thousands of years. Well, Germans 1500. And yet, this should be shocking. No longer are there barriers to our access to God. You remember temples, awkwardly, even though they are the presence of God, were all about barriers. Only the priest could get in. And then only one kind of priest could get into a certain place. It was all about how we couldn't get close to God. Even though He was there, we couldn't touch Him. We couldn't be in His presence. And now there is no barrier. Now He dwells with His people. And what does the passage say? We will see Him face to face. The brilliance and the glory of our God dwelling in the midst of our city That glory creating a light so wonderful and glorious that the only way to describe it is that we would no longer need a sun. 
this is not about the end of a need for a sun or somehow that there won't be stars and moons and planets in the new heavens and the new earth. It is poetic, prophetic language saying the glory of God is so bright and so brilliant that we will all see. That darkness will be driven out. That the place where evil and death dwell and thrives will have no room because the brightness and the glory of our God will fill every space and every heart. And John celebrates and delights in the hope and the glory of that. The light that drives away night comes first from the Lamb and from God, from their throne. And that light becomes a beacon that then draws the nations. And we know there's hope for it. We saw it in Solomon's day. We see it at Pentecost, where Jews from all around the world, the light of the world, gather together in Jerusalem and then are sent out into the world to bring the gospel to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And that creates a city of beauty, a city where God dwells. And what do they do? They bring their glory and their honor. See, there's already glory and honor there, of course, because there's God. But because we are created in the image of God, all of the nations have something to add. It is the dignity of being created in the image of God that whatever is happening in the new heavens and the new earth and all of the judgment language and all of the horror and all of the blood, whatever that means, and it does mean justice, whatever it means, it doesn't mean the obliteration of what it means to be human and created in the image of God, and to do things that are good and valuable because they will be brought into, in Christ, the heavenly city. The dignity and the glory of the nations acting in line with their king, acting in line with the gospel, bring additional glory. They reflect the glory of God back in what they've done. That is something we do now. It is one of the great impetuses of being the kingdom of God, the people of God in and through the world. The impetus behind being ambassadors is that there is glory to bring in, not of our own making, but as we act in line by the spirit of who God is in and through us, we bring glory into the city because it is the same kind of glory, the same character of God's glory. And of course, it then finds a place and it fits. Do you think about that in the work that you do, in the friendships that you have, individually and corporately, that we bring glory to God, that the light that exists in the city of God is no less than, and it's not as if it was deficient only being God's glory, but God is so gracious, God is so secure that he is delighting in seeing the glory of the nations brought in so that this beacon becomes even more bright and all know that they too can have a safe place in the kingdom of God. So what we have is glory. Glory that often we have to be told is coming from the eternal perspective because sometimes when I'm in the midst of this part of life, it is so hard to see the glory. So hard to see the promise and the power. John gives us an image, 
a glorious picture of a city so bright that the nations are drawn. What does it lead to? Well, I'm biased because of CVP, but it leads to open doors, doesn't it? You have a city, a city constructed in a historic way, which means that it had walls. And that is a sign of protection and comfort. But what becomes a distinguishing marker of Jerusalem? The doors are open. In the city, doors are open. It doesn't live in fear. God dwells in the city. What do we have to fear? And there's a way in which the nations come pouring in, and we have this passage, and it sounds rather ominous, and it is certainly not to be underestimated. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Whatever that means, it doesn't mean that I have to get right before I try and walk through the gate. There's something about walking through the gate. There's something about being willing to enter, desiring to enter, being called to enter the heavenly city that must be the process by which I'm cleansed. Because if I have to wait outside and cleanse myself, then none of the gospel makes sense. Whatever this passage means about being written in the Lamb's book of life, it is an act of God's sovereign grace and mercy, not my ability to make sure that I'm pure enough. Which also then has the additional implication that it's not my job to stand guard at the gate and keep all the impure people out. There is something about walking through the heavenly gate into the place where God dwells with a broken and contrite spirit that is the means by which that which is impure in me is removed. In fact, it becomes a very freeing and salvific act to step through the gates because then I know I will be cleansed. What I know is my sin cannot follow me in to the heavenly city. My sin cannot follow me. My brokenness, those who would take my life, cannot follow me into the heavenly city. It is a place of sanctuary and safety. It was never meant to be a citadel repulsing all those who were evil because none would get in. But it becomes the place where those who acknowledge their need are cleansed through the very washing of rebirth, of what happens when their clothes, as we've read in different places of the martyrs, are dipped in the blood of Christ and we are safe within the walls of the heavenly city. To use this as a passage to blast the world and to keep ourselves safe defies the reality of how all of us got into the city to begin with. It is but by the grace of God. The city is protected by the holiness of God that thankfully is tempered with mercy and washing. And so we need not fear We need not stand guard against those we are afraid may pervert the city. Brothers and sisters, we're already in. If God is going to keep the city safe, He probably needs to take several of us out to begin with. He can handle the incoming of the nations. He can handle the sin and brokenness. And so we have glory that leads to open doors because the light draws people in, out of darkness, into life, and we can trust that the light of God will do all of its work. 
but there is also the picture of abundance. And so we have this amazing city, but there is this water flowing. It's this amazing stream of water. Again, it's hard for John not to go back to the image in his own gospel of the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus saying, I can give you living water. Well water was okay, but what everybody loved was having a spring. A spring of what they called living water, right? There are three basic kinds of water in, the, in Scripture and in the first century, in, in the, the world, but certainly in Palestine, right? There is the cistern water. That is the worst water. That is rainwater you keep in large uh, holes, large carved out caverns, dead animals. It's just not a nice thing. And all you're trying to do there is trap a little water so you don't die. But that is necessary in a place where it doesn't rain much. And so your worst case scenarios, you know, but necessary are cisterns of water. And Scripture has great fun talking about the imagery of broken cisterns and the weakness of cisterns. And then the next thing is wells. And wells are great, but you've got to crank the water up and they can become polluted and people can throw things down. And wells are not secure but oh, everybody's great joy was to live near a spring where the water comes out crisp and clear and clean and cannot be polluted and it flows and it nourishes and it tastes so much better. That's what Jesus promises the woman at the well. Living water. Water that comes from the rock. And of course now we just run back to the exodus and the beauty of the story. But we go one step back and we remember the garden because in the garden there was a river that was split into four and watered the entire earth. And the culmination of all of that beauty and the culmination and the promise of the garden now reaffirmed in the new Jerusalem with this stream of living water running down through the city so that all might have fresh and clean water. Never parched again. And in the midst of that, there is a grand tree, a tree that we haven't been able to eat from since Adam and Eve fell. And now in Christ and in the new city, we are already beginning to eat of its fruit. See, what this seems to be saying in the imagery, and again, I'm not exactly sure how this works in the context of time, but in Christ, we are already being nourished by the tree of life. It can't take our life. And the leaves, the leaves are somehow a balm to the healing of the nations. There is a way in which we now are able to take the fruit from the tree of life. Not only for our own sustenance, but to be able to be nurses and doctors and EMTs and caregivers, if you will, to the nations with the very balm, the very leaves which, of course, as we know in various medicines, you, you grind up and they can become a salve, they can become a balm, they can become any number of healing remedies. The tree of life is already now a healing to the nations. I don't know how that works in the richness of God's story that on the one hand we're looking at something that's the future, looking for future culmination, and at the same time, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. They will see Him face to face. So we live in light, light that draws in, light that we can trust, light that does not need us 
to make it brighter, and yet God delights for us to participate in it, to be light. But it's not just the light imagery, it's the abundance, it's the water, crisp and clear, that becomes, as we often say at CVP, the means by which we minister to others. We don't make any of this. What we are is simply people who offer, in the name of Christ, a cold glass of water. Just as we have received that same refreshing glass of water in our time of need. And the abundance of the fruit, 12 fruits, every month, the harvest is reaped. The abundance by which we can live. John was living in a time where the church faced regular persecution. He wrote this book in large degree in the inspiration of God to comfort people going through times where it didn't feel like there were apples and plums and pears bouncing off the tree every month. It was more than opium for the masses. It was an understanding that there is something of a higher story, a deeper story, a richer story that is both spiritual and material coming through. And you do have in Christ abundance beyond what your bank account or your house or your health may tell you. That we eat from the very tree of life because Christ has granted us access into the Holy of Holies and we can see Him and be with Him by the Spirit. We live in a state of abundance. We live in a city whose water comes from the throne of grace. The world desperately needs to know that kind of abundance and generosity. As we live in a time in ever greater degrees where we wait for a bubble to burst, where we fear what may happen next, to be those who live with abundance can be our greatest ministry, our greatest light, our greatest glory, that the healing of the living tree might bring abundance to all around us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We do, Lord, ask for the faith to understand how these things are happening, have happened, are secure, and yet, Lord, we look for their fullness and consummation. Lord, we know that the heavenly city is already coming down, has already come, and yet, Lord, we look for the day when we can see it and live in it and walk its streets. Lord, we ask that as we encourage one another in the reality of the gospel, that it might always be in the light of your love and grace and mercy. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.